The psalmist uttered the grand question, What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? Found in Psalm 116, verse 12, helps remind each of us, as we've noted in prayer tonight, and also by way of some of the songs we've sung, the bounty of God's goodness in our direction, and how blessed indeed we are. Truly tonight, as we have opportunity over the next few moments to reflect upon a portion of the Word of God, might we ever keep in mind how loving a blessing of the Scriptures are to each of us. That lovely pathway that leads from this life unto heaven. For aren't we still reminded of in Psalm 119, verse 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We have been studying in the Hebrew letter of the New Testament for a few weeks now and arrived tonight at the seventh lesson in that series. And as you might have noted, as we studied through the first four chapters, which we have basically completed to this point, there was one section of verses that we did not give much attention to. It was the opening four verses of chapter 2, as well as a scattered verse or so in chapter 3. And I was reserving those especially for a lesson that they seemed to deserve all on their own. A lesson that I've entitled, Warnings of Neglect and Unbelief. And so tonight I'd invite your attention with me as we look at principally those first four verses of chapter 2. Some of the most well-known verses in that book. For it challenges each of us, as it has so many through the centuries, to be ever on guard and aware of not only the positive blessings we enjoy, but the one who would wish to take them from us, and the, the difficulty that neglect and unbelief can in fact bring our way. It'll be, of course, as we start that lesson, certainly a fair matter to at least place us in position as to what we've seen to this point. Basically, we have seen the superiority of Jesus from many angles and perspectives. The superiority of Christ over the prophets, the superiority of Christ over against the angels, both by virtue of his humanity and by virtue of his divinity. And then we've also seen his superiority to Moses, that great lawgiver of the Pentateuch of the Old Testament. And we've also seen his superiority even to Joshua the one who is a successor to Moses, and yet the one who, though he himself was able to enter the promised land, it was just temporary for that people. For they disobeyed God, it seemed, so quickly, and soon lost the inheritance that they had so longed to possess. Tonight, as we then review chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, Lucas read that for us just a few moments ago, as we look at some of the lessons to be seen in it tonight. Keep in mind that it is a rather straightforward warning to each of us. Neglect on the one hand, disbelief or unbelief on the other. What could be some of the danger spots for us? And by the way, some of us who are parents or grandparents, what special obligations and duties might be ours by virtue of the possibility of these matters with respect to our children, our grandchildren, the generations to follow? Those are sobering and profound thoughts, aren't they? And over the next few moments tonight, let's turn our attention towards some of them. We will briefly look at eight lessons this evening. And as we look at these eight lessons, we'll begin with these two. Verse 1 of chapter 2 begins with the ringing of these words. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. That's merely verse number 1. And from it, might we give some thought to this opening issue. I've entitled it simply to give heed to the things that have been heard. In fact, from the Greek text, that seems to be rather stronger than what our English, or at least the King James translation, would assert. 
literally in the Greek that would read that you and I should consider it necessary to pay more abundant attention to the things that we have heard. Do you note that word necessary? In the King James, there's that word ought, O-U-G-H-T. And if you're like me, some use that word as though it's a suggestion that it might be a good idea, but that's not the thrust of that Greek rendering at least. There it is a necessary matter, and you and I should give the more abundant attention to that which we have heard. In addition to a thought much like that one, doesn't that settle in your mind and mine as well the need from an early age onward to consider the dire importance of matter spiritual? Notice again what we just read in chapter 1. The Hebrew writer so loudly encouraged his readers to understand the fact Christ is superior to those prophets, those to which you Jews might have given great heed in perhaps days gone by. Not only that, Christ is superior even to those angels that you may have been tempted to give great heed to. Listen to me. You need to give the more earnest heed to what you've heard. Don't lapse from it. Don't forsake it. Don't slip back into apostasy. You give the more earnest heed to that which you have heard. Almost immediately as one gives some thought to that urgency and to the encouragement that's found in that opening part of verse 1, Notice he especially calls to our attention things that the angels may have said in those former dispensations. After all, if that which they uttered was found to be steadfast, proven to be true, and if Christ is greater than them, then what should be said about the things that Christ has said? Ought not we pay even more attention perhaps to the things Christ has said if you believe the angels' matters in days gone by were significant? The logic is inescapable, isn't it? And notice the word therefore. It thus naturally and conclusively follows that in light of what we've just shown, you should even give more earnest heed to that which you've heard. Oh, how blessed you and I are then today to be the recipients of this grand message known as the New Testament Gospel. The precious and sublime messages of the Savior that challenges us with the hope of what is life here and what hope can be hereafter. This is a tremendous blessing, isn't it? And you and I too should appreciate that we ought to give the more earnest heed to it. In light of those matters, perhaps it should be noted. Isn't it interesting that sometimes things just work out here in life? Maybe you've known somebody, or maybe you have been in that situation. Some circumstance or situation arises in life. You either had made no preparation for it, perhaps because you were unaware of the circumstance beginning to occur, or perhaps you knew it was coming, but due to one reason or another, apathy or otherwise, you made no preparation, and yet somehow it worked out. From this verse, we learn a valiant lesson. With regard to salvation, it merely is not going to work out. Nobody will enter heaven by accident. No one, by sheer happenstance, will make their way into the grand portals of everlasting life. He said, therefore, it is necessary for you to give the more earnest heed to what you've heard. That rings so loudly for you and me today still, doesn't it? To appreciate the earnestness, the labor, the effort that is involved in our sojourn here so that we can sojourn in a way that's pleasing unto our Heavenly Father. In Luke 18, beginning in verse 18, 
There the inspired writer Luke reminded us, didn't he, with regard to the Lord's conversation with the rich young ruler? That man had asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The Lord, in response to him, made note of commandments, of course, but then he said, one more thing you lack. Go sell what you have, give it unto the poor, and come follow me. That transaction closes in verse, the last verse of that chapter with the realization that the young man was sorrowful and he went away that way, for he had many possessions. There was something that man needed yet to do. Again, he couldn't just arrive at the golden gates of heaven and think he could slide on in. There was an activity here that stood between him and his loving Heavenly Father, and he was unwilling at that point to remove the barrier. Later, the inspired Apostle Paul, referring to himself, in Philippians 3, beginning in verse 7, maybe we should highlight verse 8. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and to count them but dung that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but rather the righteousness which is of God by faith. Isn't that a sobering passage? Here was the peerless apostle. Nonetheless, having arrived at the point in life when he said, I am more than excited to give up any and everything so that I could do the works of the Father and be found righteous in his sight. Maybe you and I should note it was Paul's intent to give the more earnest heed to what he'd heard and that which had been revealed to him. Do you and I stand in that same footing and in that same way? May we ever do so in loving recognition to give the more earnest heed to that which has been shown to us. But note the second lesson too, if you would. Take it from this same set of verses. One could quickly ask, what is it that they had heard and what is it that you and I have heard that is of such importance and that is of such great worth? I would ask you to note again in the very text itself what is affirmed to us. We know that it's not the words of the prophets. For recall in Hebrews 1 verse 2, did we not there appreciate and learn this lesson, that God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the prophets, but hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Thus that which the prophets earlier had declared, Christ is now the prophet of God. And you might notice verse 3 of Hebrews 2, the very passage that was read earlier in our hearing. It says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by whom? By the Lord. This precious message that they should have been giving the more earnest heed to was this message that was begun to be spoken by the Lord, this gospel of the Son of God. That word gospel means glad tidings or good news, and there is no better news than the gospel of Jesus Christ. The understanding of the reality of urging us to live closer to it, to give the more earnest heed to it, is certainly something that not only did they need in that day, but you and I still need just as valiantly and just as wonderfully today. If one compares that to the subjects and the doctrines and the dogmas that men are so often happy to speak, do not we find such a contradistinction, such a division, 
One text that perhaps draws us so closely and rivets our attention to that distinction is in 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 3. In that closing chapter of the book of 1 Timothy, Paul makes a distinction between not giving heed to certain things that had been spoken by the manner of men over against the truth, purity, power, and might of that which had been revealed through the agency of the Son of God. Yes, indeed, to note then that to which we should give heed perhaps only leads us to note the value of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul affirmed in Romans 1, verses 14 to 16, three things, three verbs in a way that could well be noted. These, in fact, could be stated in an adjective fashion. Paul began by saying he considered himself a debtor to preach the gospel to Jews, to barbarians, to Greeks. In the next verse he said, I am ready to preach it. Here was Paul, as notable a figure as he was, considering himself under obligation to proclaim the good message of the gospel, not only to be under obligation, but he says, I'm ready. He, by study and by revelation, had prepared himself to dispense the glorious goodness of the word of God. And then finally in verse 16, he said, I'm not ashamed to preach it. Sometimes we are appreciative of the fact that there are those who might well at least mentally imagine themselves ready, but when the time comes, they're ashamed of it. Or maybe there are others who perhaps consider themselves ready, but they're unwilling to. Paul had no thing in his life that buried him or was a barrier to him. He was deader, he was ready, and he was unashamed to proclaim and preach it. In chapter 9, verse 16 of the first Corinthian letter, he stated, Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. For in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. There is but one message that can save them. And you and I are the marvelous ones who have it in possession. And not that we by our own accord are in that category. We've been blessed as earthen vessels to have this message. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 6 through 8. Perhaps it might be noted in the very lesson before us with regard to that second point. When Paul entered that Corinthian congregation, in fact, even the city of Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 2, beginning in verse 1, here was a man appreciative of the kind of city in which he was. And yet, to that very group of people, he was able to say this. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. There was but one message Paul wished to preach, and it was the message of the crucified Christ. These two lessons we've already learned then in these verses before us tonight. Let's look at yet two more lessons, if we might. Numbers 3 and 4. We find in verse number 1, as that verse closes, the following observation. Did you note the languages we read it earlier? Verse number 1. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. Why? Lest at any time we should let them sleep. Doesn't that seem as if it is a warning as it regards to something that we might be tempted to pass by too quickly? Perhaps can we appreciate that in that is a very subtle, perhaps not so subtle, but at least a subtle indication about letting things drift, 
letting things slide, letting things drift into what one might imagine to be too much of a ritual to where its significance is unappreciated, lest at any time we should let them slip. Some of these thoughts I thought would be interesting to appreciate. With regard to the apostasy that you and I are able to witness in the world around us, it is not the case that someone woke up overnight and said, let's put an orchestra in the church building. It is not the case that someone just woke up one morning and changed the plan of salvation. Or that they somehow corrupted other matters of the government of the church. Apostasy is a gradual thing, isn't it? As days and months and years and perhaps even decades inch their way by, it comes in gradually and slowly. And without question, one of the factors that allows it to occur is when those who are honest and noble souls let things slip. How noble it is then to notice this warning found in Hebrews 2 verse 1. Lest at any time we should let them slip. Our elders at Pippin and each and every one of us alike, it is the furthest thing from our mind to let anything slide. We wish to do exactly what the Lord said, no less and no more. And that is in fact exactly as the Lord would wish it to be. But may we always maintain that loyalty, that allegiance to the character of the gospel and not allow things to slip and to slide and to perhaps get lazy in our approach and to allow someone to suggest something and we welcome it with open arms when in fact it is not something that's good after all. It might well be noted in terms of that. When you let things slip in your life or even in mine, doesn't that in invariably lead to things not good? Your marriage... Love that marriage, husbands and wives alike. Pay attention to that one to whom you've dedicated your life. Don't let that slip. You, she alike, the most important things in terms of maintaining a strong and solid foundation for that marriage. Don't get lazy with respect to it. With respect to your children. Don't get lazy in that relationship either. Don't let it slide. They're only young for a little while. The time comes they'll make their own decisions. And if we have failed too much, probably the seed will have been planted and they will make decisions that do not please us and far more sadly, do not please the Heavenly Father. It's significant then to not let things slide. This life is serious. We are here but a little while. Job affirmed, did he not? In Job 14.1, man is a few days and full of trouble. In Psalm 39 verses 4 and 5, our life is likened to a handbreadth. It is not a long span of matter by any consideration. In Psalm 90, verse number 10, do we not read the sobering morning? The days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is our strength labor and sorrow, and we are soon cut off and fly away. Seventy years, eighty years, perhaps even ninety or a few more, it is still a blink of an eye compared to eternity. You see, this life is brief and we must not let things slide in our families, in the Pippin congregation, in that which is so very significant and so very important to us. No wonder Paul said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's something too significant to allow it to slide away. Those matters, do they not help us see the profoundness of the Hebrew letter as this person warned those to whom he was writing 
And of course, by inspiration, warns you and me still to this day. The fourth lesson on that slide comes from the next verse. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. Did you note that word every? That is in the Greek text. Every disobedience and transgression received a just recompense of reward. But are you and I not in a position to sometimes hear, but God will overlook those little things. He will not give consideration to those minor matters. The interest of God is on the love that's in your heart, and whether you're honest or not, that's all that we're told is often that which matters. Interesting, isn't it? The Hebrew writer said, every transgression and disobedience. God overlooks nothing. Any sin, the only way to eliminate it is not to hope God overlooks it, but to have it forgiven. And that's it. There is no other option. Otherwise, it shall be remembered, and it shall be brought to bear on that day of judgment, will it not? Notice that every transgression and disobedience, perhaps I would ask you to consider with me just a few of the faults in light of that statement. Books, magazines, articles, and various other things written will often lift high the character of the loving and fair ways of God. There are some that be quick to say, but it's not fair if he considers everything, is it? Surely in his justness, he will not allow everything to be considered. I would ask us each to remember, the Hebrew writer again said every. That involves the understanding that one in the Old Testament era, James 2 verse 7 reminds us, if he offended in one point, he was guilty of all. And with regard to the greatness and the highness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, may we understand how significant it is that he says here that every, to those of us who are parents, perhaps this allows us or affords us an opportunity to consider this little lesson. Do you overlook things when your children make mistakes? In love, we should ever be ready to correct in kindness and proper in propriety. But let's face the fact that when you and I in love overlook things, we do them no justice. We often will plant the seeds for great harm and damage later. That doesn't mean that every time is worthy of a whipping. It doesn't mean that every time is worthy of severe punishment. But if we love them, we must in kindness correct it when errors are made. And when difficulties are presented, those are powerful learning opportunities, aren't they? In fact, near the bottom of that slide, to see that some of these matters as found here are also echoed elsewhere. What about those famous words of Ezekiel in Ezekiel 18.20? The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father. Neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. But the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. For isn't it still the case that the wages of sin is death? Romans 6.23 There's no hint in that about hoping that God overlooks things. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. May we learn then from the Hebrew letter the seriousness and magnitude of sin, and to appreciate in this that every transgression and disobedience will receive something. 
which in fact is the very next element in our lesson text tonight. What about lesson five? What is this that those two matters received? A just recompense of reward. I would submit that likely that second word is not one that we hear too often these days. That word recompense in our language is substituted with other words and other kinds of usages of language. And thus, I thought we would give some heed to what that in fact involved. That word recompense simply involves the idea of reward. Interesting, isn't it? We think about rewards for good things. Notice, he says here, there will be a type of reward in regard to that transgression and disobedience. It'll be a just response and reply to that which has been committed. We certainly wouldn't be surprised of God's justice and his justness, and it indeed will be in accordance, just in light of what has been committed. That kind of idea helps us also see, doesn't it, that that's far different than often what men are guilty of. Judges can make mistakes. They can render verdicts that are not in accordance to and in harmony with the crime committed. Sometimes in our opportunities, we misjudge other people. Sometimes we just simply don't know the facts, and therefore we make improper, insufficient judgment. God will judge absolutely rightly and properly in regard to the transgressions and disobediences. That's one of the things that helps us appreciate that all shall be settled on the day of judgment. The most concealed elements of the hearts of men will be made known then. And it is something to appreciate, isn't it, that that shall be the day that final vengeance shall be taken. Romans 6, or rather we've run in Romans 12, verses 18 and following. And perhaps in light of those matters, that points us to Matthew 7, verses 21 and following. There are those for whom the concept of justice is found to be very challenging. For listen, in fact, to the state of affairs of some. In Matthew 7, beginning in verse 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of the Father which is in heaven. For many shall say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Pausing at that point, doesn't it sound as if they were expecting a reward, a reward of goodness, and a reward of eternality in life? It would certainly seem so, for they mentioned we've prophesied, we've cast out devils, we've done works in your name, not in ours. But yet, in the next verse, the Lord said, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. So what had they been working? Despite the fact that they thought they were casting out devils in the Lord's name, and in fact doing things in His name, He said, You workers of iniquity! Get out of here. Depart from me. I never knew you. Doesn't that point us back to the earnestness of taking heed to that which we've heard, that which the Lord has revealed? For true enough, the justness of that will be something no one can argue. When the final books are opened, no one shall be able to argue the verdict that God has said. Oh, there'll be unhappiness, and there shall in fact be great fear and trembling for the eternity ahead. But the facts will be evident. The greatness of what the Lord did shall be made plain. And it shall certainly be the case in those matters that we might remember what the Lord told that woman in John 8, 11. Go and sin no more. 
you and I see then what sin involved. And does it help us see lesson six, the one that in fact comes next? You might have noted that verse three begins with a question. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? We will have more to say, certainly, over the course of the next few moments about that word neglect. Isn't it easy sometimes in life to find ourselves focusing with the demands of life on certain things and yet we neglect something else? It's not that we gave the absolute attention and it was our will to neglect it, but we just let things slip and we neglected what was ultimately of the greatest importance. I might ask you to think with me what that involves. It is significant that he says the great salvation. Notice I put that as a direct quote from the Bible. God has offered to you and me the great salvation. In fact, that's one of the themes of the book of 1 Peter. If you'd like to read that book in harmony with these four verses, perhaps that would open up new things for us to consider. But the idea of the great salvation is mentioned in the book of 1 Peter as well. It is truly a great salvation. Delivered from sin. Delivered from a devil's hell. Delivered from all the tortures of being in hell with all those who are sinners and ungodly people. Having you live in this life with no hope. Having to live here with the understanding of no greater destiny beyond. That would be miserable. For isn't it still true if in this life only we have hope in Christ Jesus. We are of all men most to be pitied. Romans 12 verse 18. Those kinds of thoughts challenge us how great the salvation is that we have access to. If it is so great, doesn't that then paint this picture? How far greater is it to neglect it? If the salvation is that great, how much greater a fool would I be to neglect it? And yet we live in a world with multiplied thousands who are neglecting it. They're neglecting it. They esteem other things more valuable, more important, more to be pursued, more of higher integrity, and yet they neglect the thing that is the greatest of all. That must, in fact, be tragic beyond description. And yet, in amongst it, we find in this very matter where there are some with whom you and I have spoken who are quick to say, but you, Bible thumper, it's too narrow-minded. You're too fundamental. You're too old-fashioned. But yet all we desire is to simply be what God said. That is the way that leads to everlasting life. It's our desire not to neglect the great salvation, but in fact to give the more earnest heed to what we've heard, lest we let things slip. In terms of neglecting things, what happens around your place of abode and mind when we neglect things? If that car that you drive, if you just neglect it, never do anything to it, what eventually happens? Or that house that we live in, that we make use of to protect us from the elements, what happens if we neglect it? It falls into disrepair. That car will eventually not work anymore. The house will eventually come to the point when it's not fit to live in. What happens in your spiritual life and mind if we neglect it too long? It will fall into disrepair. We'll fall into complete apostasy from the Father who loves us, and our spiritual life will be in utter shambles. That kind of disaster God doesn't want to happen. Thus, He gave us this warning to give the more earnest heed to that which you and I have heard. 
the judgment is coming. May we thus appreciate that and make use of perhaps the following two lessons in the last two of the night. As you look at them with me, we understand, of course, our life here in the flesh is brief. It'll, the time will come and it will reach its end. The Lord will return or you and I shall pass from this life in the act of death. But might we notice there are at least two more lessons that we should make note of quickly in the time allotted tonight. We might also appreciate in verses 3 and 4 that an interesting argument is set forth before us. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. It seems appropriate to at least notice. What is the role of miracles and how did the inspired penman describe them? You and I well will understand that there are some in our world who lift high the fact that we should expect miracles today and that miracles do occur today for those who have proper belief and those who have proper respect and response. If we consider what the role of miracles was in its biblical setting, did you notice the word confirmed in verse 3? God explains what the purpose of miracles were. That purpose, he says, was a confirmation. And in the next verse, he even elaborates to ensure that we don't miss the point. God is the one behind those miracles. And the purpose was to bear witness. Witness of what? To confirm the very thing he was discussing in context. This great gospel that you people, he wrote to, should not let it slip. That gospel was confirmed by miraculous wonders. Be it the healing of those that were sick, lame, blind, deaf, mute, dead, or otherwise, they were such that there were those empowered to perform that in the opportunity of confirmation. But might we ask, does the Bible anywhere affirm that that word was completed in its confirmation and that that gospel has been fully confirmed? For if so, it should then follow that the age of miracles is no more. They serve their purpose, fulfilling that which God intended for them. If we were to read 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 8, as well as perhaps a revisit to Zechariah 13 in the Old Testament, as well as Daniel chapter 9, we would find prophecies about the day when those things would cease. And Paul affirmed that the truth of God had been completed and confirmed. In fact, he said it was perfect. That word in Greek means complete. It did not need any further confirmation. It was complete in that fashion. And thus, the age of miracles is no more. You and I would thus be in error to demand God to perform such today. And perhaps all of that leads us to the final lesson of the evening. The eighth and final one of our time tonight. We noticed in chapter 3, some two weeks ago, when we studied that chapter about the evil that associates to unbelief. There are some in our world who merely consider unbelief to be a negative thing, but not necessarily evil. Perhaps they look upon it as being an unfavorable thing, but not necessarily evil. Did you note the language with me of verse 12 of chapter 3? Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. And so those of us that are parents 
or yea, any of us, in the sense that there are eyes watching us. There's someone watching the way that you do things at work or at school or the way that you interact with family members and neighbors and the way that you interact with brothers and sisters in Christ. Thus, what kind of example are we setting? Are we planting seeds of doubt and disbelief or unbelief? Or are we far more that person whose life is a wholesome reflection to the best of his ability of this narrow way that leads to everlasting life, of the earnestness of those things that we have heard? We do have a rather profound obligation, don't we? Bring up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. The general promise of Proverbs 22, 6. To fathers, in fact, and parents alike, we learn various things to bring up a child in the way he should go. We also learn that bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, Ephesians 6, 4. Thus tonight, in many of the things we've listed and seen, what are others seeing in my life and yours? Do they see someone who is desirous of not letting things slip? Do they see someone who is interested in giving the more earnest heed to what has been heard? Do they see someone desirous of appreciating the fact that every disobedience and transgression will receive a just recompense of reward? If you and I live in that fashion, following that pattern, we will impact many for good, for they will see an example of the Christ and a person reflecting the love of God to them. As we close tonight's lesson, these eight lessons that we have considered somewhat briefly, admittedly, but none the least with power and majesty, have been lessons that I've tried to summarize in a very few words like that to give the earnest heed to the things we've heard, to not, in fact, allow them to sleep, to understand the just penalty for every disobedience and transgression, to understand all along that way that the age of miracles is no more, and the last things to be noted, certainly no escape to those who neglect the great salvation. It should be that note that we ought to use, it would seem to me, to close the lesson. Understand that God is affirming for us there will be no escape for those who neglect the great salvation. Have you neglected it to this point? Are you neglecting it tonight? Perhaps you've never obeyed the gospel initially, and despite the fact you know what the Lord did for you, and you know the plan of salvation, to this point you have neglected it. You've waited for a better day. You've waited for another day that maybe a better Sunday. I'm going to feel in a better mood. There will be no better night than this one. This 21st day of March, the year 2010, could be a fantastic day eternally for you. The baptismal waters behind me are warm and prepared. A host of individuals are excited to rejoice on your behalf if you need to respond in that fashion. You need, you see, to hear the word of the Lord. These things spoken of in Hebrews 2.1. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His name as the Son of God and be, and be baptized. If you need to do that tonight, why wait? Why delay? Why procrastinate? If you have become a Christian and you've known what that was like, but you've let things slip, you've done the very thing that you were warned not to do, you may feel shameful and perhaps you should, but it's not hopeless. Come back to that initial state of faithfulness. God hasn't given up on you. He wants you back. Jesus still died for you and His blood is efficacious on your behalf. 
if we could be of benefit in aiding you tonight to pray on your behalf for sins committed and to pray for that forgiveness, why not let us do it while together we stand and while we sing?